Hello and welcome to the Curious Body Podcast. I'm your hostess, Nyana B. We're all in a good mood today. I just have a message of hope. So let's go back to basics. Spirituality is for everybody. I don't mind if you're the most rational, logical person with the most rational, logical job, or if you're a free spirit, if you're young or old, black, white, yellow, red, Asian, Caucasian, Haitian, it doesn't matter. That was kind of a freestyle. Um, The Buddha pointed out there are 84,000 doors to enlightenment. That means, in other words, through his amazing analogy, that spirituality is for everybody, every single person. Here's a newsflash. The Buddha was still an individual after his awakening. He was and he wasn't. Meaning he still had a body, he still had a personality, he still had things he did. He ate, he taught, he walked, he meditated. And he was also at one with every single being in the universe. He saw all his former lives, all his future lives, and he was living simultaneously in his life. It's very hard for us to comprehend. This is what scientists are working on now with their quantum physics and their theory of everything, string theory, and all of this stuff. So hopefully we can marry those and that just proves again that spirituality is for everybody. It's for the scientist, it's for the dancer, it's for the singer, it's for the nine-to-fiver, it's for the farmer, it's for absolutely everybody. And you know so often I come across people in my life such as friends, parents, other people's parents, my friends' parents, my uh, acquaintances and neighbors, and they're very much in their head all the time. Myself included. I am not excluded. But through spirituality I'm figuring these things out. So here we go. We are very much in our heads. So if you're in your head all the time, it means you're using the rational part of your brain or your mind. It means you're trying to figure things out. You know, even on this podcast, I could think, what should I say next? Should I have said that? What topic? Uh, The list goes on and on. So we're very much in our rational minds. And if we're in our rational minds, a lot of the time, That means that we are not using another portion of our being, which is the freedom part, the creative part, the spontaneous part, the artistic part, the one that wants to let go and be free. If we're not balancing these two, then the mind can over-rationalize and go around in circles. And that's why, by my deduction, this is my opinion only, we have recurring thoughts and situations in our lives because our rational mind can't figure out what to do with life. Life, if you want to call it Wu Wei or the Tao or the Dharma, life is flowing. It's a continual process. Rationality is included in that process. But if we think that rationality will help us figure everything out, and come to the end point, some end point, because the rational mind needs a point, a point A and a point B, or a point in general, um, then we can be sorely mistaken and led off the beaten track. We need a balance of both, 
And this is more or less what spirituality is about, in my view. It's about letting go and letting things be. Now, going back to the fact that there are 84,000 doors to enlightenment. All right. So if you need a plan, if you're a planner, that's exactly what the Dharma is for, the Buddha Dhamma. He has everything labeled by numbers. Let's back up just a little bit. After the Buddha attained awakening under the Bodhi tree, he had to decide what to do next. Does he go and run and tell everybody about it? Or does he keep it to himself? Or does he not say anything? You know, it was a kind of a conundrum for him. But he sat silently for a number of days before he said anything to anybody. And apparently he came to the conclusion that he would go out and teach, but he needed to teach people in a way that they would understand at the mindset they were at. So I'm assuming they were as well quite rational and a bit uptight, just like us Western folk. You know, there were kings and queens and, and rules and uh, societies and establishments to uphold in his time. So it wasn't much different to what's going on today, if you want to look at it that way. So that's why he created the Dhamma the way he did. He realized that people were living immoral lives, meaning they were not exactly, I would say, as peaceful or intelligent as we are today with that fact. I guess that depends on where you live as well. But he wanted to create the path starting with morality so that you could move up. In other words, if you're into stealing and you're a chronic stealer or a chronic liar, how are you supposed to move up the spiritual path if that's all your mind is focused on instead of higher thoughts or higher reasoning or higher ways of experiencing the world? So that's why he created the system by numbers. Everything is numbered. The Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Four Immeasurables. And if you go through the suttas, if you like to read, the list goes on and on and on and everything is numbered. That is exactly for the rational mind. That was the point I wanted to make about Buddhism, and if you want to study Buddhism, it is rational and it is logical. However, it's quite interesting because I consider myself a Buddhist for namesake, but I'm not very Buddhist. If you want to look at it in the... Mm, conceptual and cultural framework that is normally thought of as Buddhism. When we think of Buddhism, we think of people meditating in a lotus posture. And don't lie, I know you think this. <laughs> Everybody does, that's what they're taught. Sitting in a lotus posture, you know, attending retreats, maybe we wear very simple clothes, a robe, um, we shave our heads, we're very quiet and meek and mousy, we don't dance, we don't sing, we're never distracted, we're very focused, very mindful. If we're eating, we're eating and nothing else is happening. And we do a lot of chanting, a lot of praying, and we go to bed without any friends. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not every Buddhist. That's a cultural framework 
within specific times and settings in which Buddhism operated. This is a very important point to understand. I've realized lately that there are millions of ways of looking at the world. Well, I already knew that, but if you want to go into it deeper, there are many ways of looking at the world and we take them for granted. So the reason that we think of Buddhists in this way as this specific look or style, you know, even of clothing or hair, this specific set of practices or set of ways of going about the day and belief systems, they're completely in a cultural context. Let me say that again, they're completely in a cultural context. Do you think that somebody from Tibet and somebody from South Africa and somebody from the United States and somebody from Finland and Iceland will look and practice Buddhism the same way even if they are practicing the exact same form of Buddhism? I'll let you answer that. But Buddhism is for everybody simply because it's not about cultural context. There are contexts within Buddhism. There's an academic point of view. We can observe anthropologically what Buddhists are doing in this country or that country, how they sit, how they walk, how they talk. But I am a Buddhist and I also am a runner. I love to run, I dance, I play, I'm building a house. My style does not fit in with the Dhamma. I'm very Western, I wear short skirts, I like to be sexy. Uh, there are some monastic parts of me, maybe we won't get into that, but you know, I believe in sex as a form of complete union with one. So I'm very monogamous and I never go back on this form of morality for myself and some other morals, but I don't fit the stereotype of a Buddhist at all. But the Dhamma is so, so unique that it surpasses all norms because as the Buddha pointed out and as you can also realize this goes beyond image completely. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from or how old you are or what you eat or what you wear or how you talk, what words you use. What matters is the quality of your mind and your happiness. The Dhamma is about attaining happiness and peace. This is more to me like an art form, obtaining happiness and peace. It's not something like, I have peace. I pull the word peace out of the air and bring it into my heart and now I have peace. No, it's not like an object you have. It's you being okay with being you, with your material surroundings, with your family and friends and whoever may be connected to you at the moment. And it's about not desiring what is not yours. You can look into this deeply and apply it to your own life. Actually, if you read the suttas, try to look at them 
from the standpoint of reading a good novel that's happening in another place in time, but applying them to you. Because like the Buddha, you are still an individual and you're also part of everything. So you don't have to be rigid when you read the suttas. They're for everybody of every temper on the planet. And if you do this, you can find peace without what the Buddha called clinging or grasping. Clinging and grasping is always wanting to change something or be somewhere else or do something else or be better or have a better partner or a different house or trying to bend reality in your point of view to fit what you think will make you happy rather than being okay with what is. It's very simple. And if you are okay with yourself in your own mind, no matter where you are on your journey of life, whether you're an alcoholic, drug addict, whether you're depressed, whether you're middle-aged and you have a normal job, a normal wife, a normal life, or if you're a student, whatever trauma you think you've been through or you have been through, doesn't matter. It's about accepting the circumstances as they are and realizing how you can work with that part of your mind to uproot defilements and create more happiness for yourself. We've all been through terrible things. We've all been through trauma. There's not one person on the planet, even the Buddha goes over how birth itself is a trauma. Come on, you came out of somebody else's body kicking and screaming into a bright light. You didn't know what was going on and you had sensory overload. You were covered in blood and it, it was probably terrible. Maybe that's why we can't remember. But if even birth is a trauma and we've all experienced birth, everybody has been through trauma. You can't change that fact. You can't take it away. But it is trauma often that helps people grow and change and heal because if you look back and you think how much you've been through on this physical plane of existence and how you didn't get overwhelmed to the point of death saying that you're listening you are not dead I suppose <laughs> but if you look at that it's amazing you've gotten through everything and often we hang on to these things as parts of ourselves that we needn't. Yes, we can remember because it taught us a lesson, maybe how to create inner strength or deal with this situation in the future, and we can remember that. But clinging onto it or being averse to it as something that is blocking us, like an energetic block, a lock, now our heart is locked. We can't love anybody again because of something that happened 10 years ago or we're afraid to take a specific job because of what happened in our job two years ago or whatever. We have to get over those locks and blocks and realize that trauma has an important role to play. Nobody's immune from it as the Buddha found when he saw disease, old age and death on the streets for the first time. True story. And we're no different than anybody else. So therefore we have no private world. 
We think we do because of our past, because of our trauma, because of our, even our achievements, all the happy moments. We hold on to those as memories of who we think we are. But the thing is, we all have those. So there's actually no private world. There are just things happening, events unfolding. And we can be at ease with this unfoldment without constantly trying to micromanage everything. And that creates more space. Now, even if you don't want to practice the Buddha Dhamma and you don't care about it whatsoever, that's okay too. Spirituality is for everybody. If you think that nothing matters and you don't really have to do any practice, you can just live your life and see how things unfold. Okay, that's pretty much Neo Advaita. Neo Advaita. If you want to say mantras and you want to chant, you want to be in India, you want to do all this cultural, spiritual type of work, okay. You can be a follower of Advaita Vedanta. There are many schools of Advaita Vedanta as well. Uh, not just Shankacharya, who is probably I would think, in my point of view, one of the most revered Advaitins of his time because he went through and he rejected everything that other Advaitins said. You have to research, it's a very long story. But there are different schools within Advaita Vedanta. It's a very traditional way of looking at God and reality. And it's also like a guide. It's got guidance there. It's also very beautiful because it's based on the Upanishads, which are rich in imagination and creativity. So they do talk about Ishvara. They do talk about Bhagavan. They do talk about God. But they also talk about Krishna, for example. And in my view it's kind of like empty full it's like half empty and half full but there are much fuller traditions as well so if you like to sing and dance and also chant then go for the Hare Krishna movement or Sanatana Dharma or Bhakti these are all very similar I don't want to hear about fighting between these traditions. They do fight, or I would say disagree. And uh, the Hare Krishna movement has some sort of a bad reputation because, you know, the whole church money entanglement deal. But the basis of bhakti is worship of God through mantra and through giving your highest form of love to Krishna or God or both as an expression so that's why there's a lot of singing and dancing and you can do bhakti at home you can do bhakti at home bhakti and puja puja and bhakti in my opinion are quite similar puja is worship the basic worship of gods and goddesses in Sanatana Dharma 
so you can have an altar or a picture or you can just imagine and you create offerings to the gods and then they bless you back bhakti is very similar but it's not as structured as that it actually it's a different structure let's just say that so there are many things you can do and if you don't want to do any of it your life is still functioning and unfolding like everybody else so if you come to the realization that that is true that is a giant leap forward for you and for mankind and also in spirituality there's no discrimination so <laughs> at least from this point there's no judgment what you do because it's all beautiful anyway this is why the world is so divine because look at each piece of this puzzle each little jewel is shining in their own way everybody's completely individual but at the same time part of this mass that is the one and it's not a person and it's not a thing and it's not a place and it's not a noun and it's not a word it is reality it is God it is Bhagavan so whatever you do do it without fear do it fully gain your own insights in your own time and I'd love to hear what insights you have and what you practice if you want to email me it's curiousbodhi at zoho.com I'm very happy to respond to everybody set up interviews and connect with you have a blessed day peace wherever you are on earth and my thoughts and my heart go out to you Om.